This is the podcast of the California Institute of Integral Studies, where we bring you conversations and lectures from our public program series, featuring world-renowned scholars, leaders, authors, artists, and thinkers. In this episode, mycologist Paul Stamets on mushrooms and the mycology of consciousness. This talk, which examines how mushrooms can help the health of people and the planet, was recorded on August 11, 2016, in front of a live audience in San Francisco. To make sure you never miss an episode of the CIIS Public Programs Podcast, find us and subscribe on iTunes or on our website at ciis.edu slash podcast. Wow. <laughs> um, guess we're not in Kansas anymore, are we? <laughs> well, I'm honored to be here. Thank you, Clara. Uh, thank you, CIIS. Um, this talk is uh, a really a culmination of a lifetime of effort and experiences and a lot of help from a lot of people, including many people in this audience. Um, this is going to be an immersion talk. It's going to go deep. But the end of the talk comes with some conclusions that I think should inspire you, give you hope for the future, give you actionable techniques for making a difference to help the biosphere. I'm gonna cover a number of different species of mushrooms um, in the course of this, but first, a lot of people like to know what's the deal with my hat. This is my favorite hat. This hat is actually made from a mushroom called amadou. Amadou, I'm going to use a few Latin binomials, but I'll stick with common names as much as possible. The Latin binomials, Fomis Fomentarius. Amadou mushroom is, is, has been critical for the survival of humans for literally thousands of years. It allowed for the portability of fire. You can hollow this mushroom out, put embers of fire inside, and carry it for days. There's no doubt we all came from Africa. We migrated north into Europe. We discovered something new called winter. Oops. <laughs> If your clan could not keep fire alive, your clan you know, could perish during the wintertime. So the portability of fire was absolutely critical, and this mushroom enabled that. Moreover, when you soak this mushroom in lye water, it delaminates and becomes mycelium. And this fabric, you can pull it apart, and this hat is being made, being made by some ladies in Transylvania. Now, there are about 20 to 25 hat makers just five or six years ago. Now it's down to about four or five. This is the fabric of Amadou, and this mushroom also was very important for fly fishermen. They could dry off their flies. Um, this mushroom uh, also um, revolutionized warfare, because during the Napoleonic times, this was the punk that ignited the gunpowder in rifles. Um, moreover, this was also used for smoking hives to subdue bees. And so beekeepers for centuries found that the Amadou fabric was very, very good for smoking and controlling bees. This mushroom also is, was found recently, about 15, 20 years ago, as being the first anti, having the first antiviral properties of any mushroom active against the tobacco mosaic virus. So this is why I think mushrooms, plants, animals become shamanistically important because of a multiplicity of practical applications and mushrooms certainly fit into that arena. 
So I'd like to mention my hat is highly flammable. <laughs> so if someone's smoking a cigarette or a joint, you know, and an ember goes in my hat, a hat, which has happened once, you know, if ember from a fire, but it kindles for a while and then it starts smoking. So, you know, I have to be really careful around people who are smoking. Um, another mushroom that we'll be talking about will be a turkey tail. You'll be hearing a lot about this mushroom. And then chaga, which is a fantastic mushroom that grows on birch trees. And then the red-belted polypore, the Latin name is Fomitopsis pinicula, and it's a very, very common woodconch, and these are all woodconchs, basically, that grow on trees. And then I have a spectacular fruiting. We grow lots of mushrooms. We have about 400 to 500 species of mushrooms that we grow in our cultural library. And this is the famous reishi, lingzhi, 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 Ganoderma lucidum. This is a gorgeous, gorgeous uh, specimen, which I'm very proud to show for the first time. And then I wanted to show you a very dear friend of mine that is a resident exclusively to the old growth forest. And this mushroom is called agaricon. Agaricon is known as Fomitopsis officinalis. Dioscorides first described it in 65 AD as a treatment against consumption, later thought to be known as tuberculosis. Dioscorides described it as elixirium ad longum vitam, the elixir of long life. You're going to be hearing a lot about all of these mushrooms, and in particular, this agaricon. So I want you to hold on to your proverbial hats, and let's go on a magical mushroom mystery tour. <laughs> and um, it's going to be taking some strange twists and turns, I assure you, but I am in San Francisco. <laughs> so I think that your cerebral... Uh, Receptor sites will be uh, adequately titillated, I hope so. <laughs> but the title of my talk is Mushrooms and the Mycology of Consciousness. We live in the best of times. We may be living in the last of the best of times. The importance of future generations literally lies upon our shoulders and the decisions that we make today. I think there is a path into the future that's is sustainable, that we can marshal our resources, provided we tap into the power of mycelium. So this is what I call mycelial earth. The core of this talk is biodiversity, is biosecurity. We have about 8.3 million species estimated on this planet. We're losing approximately 30,000 species per year. In 100 years, that means we'll lose more than a third of the species uh, on Earth. Like rivets in an airplane, as we lose species, how many rivets in an airplane can be lo uh, lost before you have catastrophic failure? This is the problem that we face today. We've entered in the 6X, the sixth greatest extinction event known in the history of life on this planet. But it's not caused by an asteroid impact. It's been caused by an organism, by us. Not only are we the cause of this extinction event, but we're very likely to be one of his victims. So I'm going to take you through an evolutionary history of life on this planet. But first, I want to show a rather remarkable uh, pictograph, the bee shaman from about 7,000 years ago. That's the original cave art, redrawn by Kath uh, Kathleen Harrison and then Jonathan Meter. In the northern Ticilia Plateau, which would have meant the plateau of running rivers, this uh, pictograph was discovered. 
And even though it was published in several journals, not a single academic scientist dared speculate what the artist's intent was. Are you kidding? <laughs> the artist is obviously very excited about mushrooms. <laughs> and mushrooms were preserved in honey for literally thousands of years, and that led to psychoactive meads. But mushrooms were banned from beer by the Beer Purity Act, the Bavarian Beer Purity Act of 1516. So the use of mushrooms also extends into Greek history, speaking to the origination myth of the seasons. Demeter is giving Persephone a mushroom, which she takes before she consumes it and goes into the underworld. That's the onset of winter. She returns in the spring. She comes from Hades. She's in the above world. The crops grow, warmer seasons, and then in the fall she returns. A lot of people here know about the Eleusinian Mysteries. It's a whole different subject, but this is just the tip of that, of that story. Well, Hippocrates first mentioned Amadou for cauterizing wounds in approximately 415 BCE. Dioscorides mentioned Agaricon as a treatment against consumption. So it gives you some sense that the, in the pharmacopoeia of ancient, ancient peoples, Mushrooms, you know, played a significant role. I'd like to first give credit to my teachers. This is uh, Dr. Alexander Smith, the University of Michigan, Dr. Daniel Stuntz, University of Washington, Kit Skates from Post Falls, Idaho. These are my th th four teachers and Dr. Michael Bugue. These three individuals have now passed on, and Dr. Michael Bugue is now retired, and it's because of their friendship and their encouragement and their generosity and many stimulating conversations that I'm here today. I entered in the field of mycology when I was around 16 years of age and I was self-taught. 19 to 20 years of age, I entered into the Evergreen State College and I was really excited about mycology and I met these, these pioneers in the field of mycology. Now these individuals were politically conservative by today's standards. And so when I was really excited about mushrooms and I first met them, this is what I looked like. <laughs> <laughs> Your suspicions are now confirmed. Okay? <laughs> but they took me under their wings, but foremost, um, going back earlier than this time when I had so much hair, I, I went through puberty very early. Um, <laughs> But I really want to give credit um, to my brother, John. John Stamets was the, um, the um, oldest brother in our family. John was, uh, was a true scientist. He got a full scholarship, University of Washington Medical School. Prior to that, he went to Yale. Uh, Lily and I grew up in a small town in Ohio, Columbiana, Ohio. And we had a fairly large house, but in the basement was a fully equipped laboratory. My father was a lieutenant on the uh, USS Intrepid, the aircraft carrier. And after World War II, we got the Intrepid aircraft carrier radio. So in our basement, we had this huge radio with big cathode ray tubes and banks that we put in, listened to sh uh, uh, secret communications across the Iron Curtain. And they would let me play with the radio, and Lily was involved in that too. But John was a serious scientist. There's four rows of chemicals and all sorts of chemistry books. And he went on to major in chemistry. 
Um, and so, but he wouldn't let me play in the laboratory. It was serious work that he was doing. I just wanted to blow up things. And so John went on to Yale. My brother, other older brother, Bill, went on to Cornell. My sister, Lily, went on to Ohio State. They sort of abandoned the laboratory, and I had it for myself. <laughs> so I always, I love playing in the laboratory, and I, I always thought my dream is to live in the country and have, be a scientist having my own laboratory complex. And Dusty and I have achieved that dream. We do have a laboratory complex, and many of our supporters are here. We're thankful now we have 75 employees. We own 100% of our business. We have no debt. We pulled off something that was really a financial miracle, just through stamina and support from so many good people, and I really believe in karma. But John came back from Yale when, when, uh, uh, on vacation, and he gave me this book. And he says, Paul, I'm going to lend you this book, but I, I, wanna, I want you to give it back to me. Now, I'm, I'm basically 14 years of, old, uh, of age. I'm really excited. I, I admire my brother John. He went, goes to Mexico. He goes to Colombia. Comes back with these incredible stories of eating magic mushrooms, you know. And I'm just like, oh, just in love with my brother, and just you know, uh, I, I idolized him. And he's, and so said, but Paul, I want you to give this book back to me, you know, in a month or so, because I, I need it for my classes. So my best friend Ryan Snyder, you know, he said, Paul, let me borrow that book. And I go, well, Ryan, it's my brother's. And he goes, no, I really want to borrow it. And I said, okay, you you can have it for a week, but give it back to me. So Ryan Snyder borrowed this book, and a week passes, and two weeks pass, and Ryan, I need my book back. And he, he kept on delaying. I go, come on, Ryan, give me back my book. Four weeks, five weeks, six weeks, my brother John saying, Paul, give me back the book, please. I need it back. And I didn't want to tell him I didn't have it. So finally, I got really upset at my friend. I said, Ryan, where's my blasted book? He goes, Paul, I can't give it back to you. I go, why? He goes, my dad burned it. <laughs> I said, your dad burned my book? And I couldn't believe it. And then I thought, wow, if the subject matter in this book about altering your consciousness was such a threat that it caused him to burn this book, this is a subject I gotta study. So, <laughs> so I went on and um, we got a Drug Enforcement Administration uh, permit at the Evergreen State College. I went on, I've published four new species in the genus Psilocybe, Psilocybe azurescens, Psilocybe linaformans, Psilocybe cyanofibrillosa, and Psilocybe wileyi. Um, these are species that are new to science. We were legally able to grow lots of them. I became very popular on campus, but I thought everyone was a DEA agent. <laughs> so <clears throat> my mantra is nature provides, I don't. And so, uh, <laughs> but I'm very happy to show people how to identify them. So, okay, so let's think about the influence of psilocybin mushrooms on human evolution. But first, let's consider this. I'm going to lay out a circumstantial argument. This is a hypothesis. I cannot prove this. Maybe no one can prove this. The Golgi monkey consumes up to 35% of his diet as fungi more than 12 times its body weight in the mushroom called uh, astro, uh, Ascopoliparus. Now, he is one of 23 primates that are known to consume mushrooms in quantity, that are known to identify which ones are poisonous and which ones are edible. So think about that. In the primate history, 23 humans being one, with 23 primates knowledgeable about the consumption of mushrooms, 
how far does that ancestral knowledge go back in the evolution of humans? Well, the late, great Terence McKenna, who's a wonderful friend to many of us here, he came out with a stoned ape theory. Now, I disagree with Terence on lots of things, but one critic said, if only 5% of the things that Terence said was true, it's phenomenal. <laughs> I, I would agree. Um, so Terence, I call the stoned ape hypothesis, because the theory is based on fact, the hypothesis is based on conjecture. So, but Terence's thing was that, and it was echoed uh, initially by Roland Fisher in an article in 1970, increasing visual acuity when you would ingest psilocybin mushrooms. So basically the theory or hypothesis goes as such. As our primate ancestors came out of the trees and we went across the savannas tracking animals, any of those you are hunters or have tracked animals, what do you look for? You look for footprints, and you look for scat, you look for poop. They may be beyond the event, uh, the, your visual horizon. But in the course of looking for these animals and tracking them, you encounter piles of poop. And what is fruiting out of the poop in the, in the, in the, in the tropics and subtropics? The most substantial psychoactive mushroom in the world in terms of mass is Psilocybe cubensis. It's growing here on elephant dung. 200,000 years ago, there was a sudden increase in our cerebral cortex, in our frontal lobes. It is unexplained. And we migrated into Europe, Homo sapiens did, 40,000 years ago, displaced Homo erectus and Neanderthals in two to 4,000 years. How does that happen? So there was a quantum increase in the cranium size for, and those of us who've eaten these mushrooms, I mean, just mathematical fractals, the heavens open up, three-dimensionality. You can look into the heavens, you bond. And so you're hungry, you're tra traveling with your clan, you find these mushrooms, you're hungry, you eat them, you share the food, and your whole clan goes through this community experience. Okay, that's reasonable. I mean, it's highly plausible. This is what you would run into. Well, it happens not once or twice, not 10 times, not 100 times, not 1,000 times, millions of times, over millions of years. If you know anything about epigenesis, the stimulus response on the on genome, it can upregulate gene sequences in response to environmental stimuli. Psilocybin is very closely related to serotonin. It's a serotonin antagonist. It becomes a neurotransmitter. I believe that Terence's belief in the stoned ape hypothesis is highly reasonable. I believe that it's very likely the evolution of humans took a quantum leap from the ingestion of psilocybin mushrooms over millions of years by millions of primates, and then one thread of those primates it burst into being as we are today. So psilocybe cubensis goes on elephant dung, cow dung, all sorts of ungulates, it cohabitats with another mushroom, which is also extremely potent, and they show up in common, called a Copelandian uh, cyanescens, or that's a Copelandian penelis. But there has been a new surge in the interest of psilocybin mushrooms just of recently, and CIIS you know, is specializing in educating people about this. But across the United States in particular, microdosing with psilocybin 
by computer coders has become rampant. At the TED conference last year, I had no less than six coders come up to me at TED saying, Paul, you know about microdosing with psilocybin? <laughs> no shit, Sherlock. But <laughs> <laughs> so, it, it, so this is taking a below threshold where you're not getting intoxicated, but basically it's like taking a psilocybin vitamin that it leads to neurogenesis. Now, this has been in Forbes magazine, the Wall Street Journal. You can look this up. And the idea is the increased creativity. With, neuro with neurogenesis, with more you know, uh, brain matter, basically, with more connections, ideas come or flow much more rapidly. And I think this could be the next quantum leap in the evolution of humans, is the deliberate use of psilocybin and microdosing um, for helping us to increase cognition and imagination. So, now, an interesting, several studies have come out. John Hopkins has a lot on, on, on this. Many of you know about that. But a very interesting study came out on, on fear conditioning. And basically, uh, the stimulus response, it was with rodents, but basically getting them trained to be afraid of a stimulus, and under the doses of psilocybin, they could overcome that fear response and retrain those rodents so they would not have that, that effect. Well, let's look at that. Overcoming fear response, PTSD, rape victims, people who have been abused, people associated a gunshot with, you know, a, you know, a fear because of their wartime experiences. So if psilocybin in, uh, helps you overcome fear response, then it seems to me that Psilocybin induces courage. Psilocybin induces kindness, empathy. You're in love with your family. You're in love with the earth. You're in love with existence. You have this just overwhelming feelings of, of wellness. And if that's true, and I think it is, then by God, these are leadership skills. <laughs> it might behoove our political leaders to be engaging in psilocybin. <laughs> At a time they so we so desperately need them to. So, okay. I wanted to now just, I'm going to do a background on mycology and mycelium from an ecological and evolutionary perspective. This is where Dusty and I like to go to church on Sundays in the old growth forest. And you look at an ecosystem, you know, in terms of the mycelial components. There are saprophytic fungi that break down dead wood. There are the endophytic fungi that grow within trees and throughout the leaves, literally hundreds of them per tree sometimes. The mycorrhizal fungi that many of you know about, that infuses into the root zones. I highly recommend Suzanne Samard's TED Talk that just got published. And then the parasitic fungi that kill living trees and plants, and then oftentimes they can grow saprophytically. So, but when looking at all of these, Scientists realized about 10 years ago in doing sections and looking at sections of plants under the microscope, they would see these threads, these filaments of fungi. They thought, oh, there were contaminants, there are parasites. It didn't, you know, it took a few brave mycologists to say, no, those are not parasitic fungi, those are endophytic fungi. And in fact, all plants are part fungi. This begs the question, anyone who's doing work on ethnomedicines based on plants, what is the fungal contribution? of the endophytic fungi within the plant when people are attributing the benefits of plants having certain properties 
how many of those properties are attributable actually to the fungi. So excellent book I recommend is Mycorrhizal Symbiosis. 95% of those threads you see is mycelium. It extends the rhizosphere. We call it the mycosphere, literally by thousands of times. And the fungal networks help plants communicate. Now, I postulated this in the, about 15 years ago when an excellent study came out of just a few years ago on fungal communication. Basically, the experiment is very simple. Five bean plants, separate pots. They introduce aphids to the first bean plant, alkaloids, anti-aphid compounds, chemicals upregulated from, uh, from the plant that was exposed to the aphids. The other four ones that were, that were in separate pots but you know, nearby did not uh, produce those same anti-aphid alkaloids. We repeated the experiment and put all the plants in the same common soil and let the mycelium underneath network together between the, the, the roots, the rhizosphere. When they introduced aphids to the first plant, what happened? The four other plants upregulated the expression of the alkaloids to fight the aphids remote from contact. That was the first really discrete experiment that showed that the mycelial networks are communication networks that are unifying ecosystems, and there are these are communication channels that are occurring underground. The mycelium can have many different types. types. This is what I, I call happy mycelium, rapidly forking mycelium. And here's a 10-day sequence of mycelium growing in a Petri dish. Um, <laughs> yeah, it worked. Um, and at the, at the tips of these, is, uh, these, these cells are multinucleate. They're polynucleate. There literally can be hundreds of nuclei per cell. Later on, they segregate, and they typically have two nuclei per cell. Well, because of these hundreds of nuclei per cell, it's a ripe environment for epigenesis, for experimentation. So when you look at the mycelium as it grows out, as it can, is constantly forking and dividing, and these nuclei are resorting, and if it encounters a new toxin, a new insect, a new potential food source, if those nuclei then code for that enzyme that breaks down that potential food source as a nutrient reservoir that the mycelium can use, what happens? The mycelium surges. And that information back channels then to the network of mycelium. So these are self-learning membranes. The mycelium is a fabric-like network, and then under the influence of typically four stimuli, introduction of water, most of us know that, it rains, mushrooms come up. As it rains, the mycelium comes up, exhales carbon dioxide, inhales oxygen. That's the second stimulus. The, when it rains, the temperatures drop, so the, the drop in temperature. And because of evaporation, that's the third one. The fourth one is quite surprising to many, it's light. 99% of all mushrooms require light. They're phototropic, they're photosensitive. And then the mushrooms have been, begin to emerge. This is the first indication of the primordial formation. I spent many years as a scanning electron microscopist. And so these are some of my micrographs. And there's the mushrooms forming over five days. Mushrooms do not have a good immune system. They're ripened fruit, like a peach. They attract herbivores or mycovores. And so the mycelium is resident in the ecosystem for months, years. It has a very active immune system. The mushrooms are called typically the fruit bodies. But I'm fascinated with decomposition. My manly man picture here. <laughs> and so we take wood chips at our facility. We add mycelium. Lots of things happen. Ultimately, we generate soil. Mushroom mycelium are the grand molecular disassemblers of nature, the soil magicians. They take wood or animal tissue and they make it into soil. 
And the sequence of decomposition spins nutrients off to many other life cycles. Well, unfortunately today, because of our practices, we only have 10 to 15% of the wood debris. And yet 70% of our soils are composed of microbial mass. And of this mass, 30% is fungal. So when you pick up soil that's healthy, a third of that mass is fungal tissue. So because of our repetitive logging and, and cutting practices, we are basically robbing, robbing the nutritional bank that is necessary for the mushroom mycelium to grow. Now, mycelium produces all sorts of products, carbon dioxide being one, I'll talk about that in a second, but mycelium can come to a dried substrate and liberate water, create water. Oxygen is being inhaled by the mycelium, it combines with hydrogen, H2O is formed. The mycelium hydrates habitats as it grows, generating its own water, so it generates the moisture that then can, can make the, the substrate more appetizing. But let's look at something that's truly phenomenal. This is the Columbia River, Washington State, where Dusty and I live. And this is the John Day Wilderness. So we're gonna fly into this zone here. This is the largest organism in the world, a mycelial mat, 2,200 acres in size, 1,665 football fields in context. It is a mycelial membrane and it's one cell wall thick, surrounded by hundreds of millions of microbes that want to consume it. We have five or six skin layers that protect us from infection. The mycelium has one cell wall on the opposite side of which there's all these hungry microbes that would love to consume it. How is it possible? It is impossible because it's in constant biomolecular communication with its ecosystem because, because of epigenesis. It develops immune systems to present, prevent pathogens and parasites from harming it. Now, I'd like to mention, I took this photograph. <laughs> I hired a small airplane. I went up there to look for it. The pilot and I, we couldn't find it. We had the long coordinates that was published in the literature. We went back the next day. We were right on top of it, but we weren't up high enough. So we went back and we circled up, up, up. And we got up to 14,500 feet. And I'm in this tiny little airplane. It's actually a cloth covered airplane the bush pilot from Alaska and I, I said there it is I can see it and I said but I think I'm gonna faint and the pilot goes me too and I go oh no <laughs> I said let me get a photograph first he goes we gotta get down because we went from sea level to 14,500 feet you know in one hour that was just too much of a climb so it's the best photograph of the largest organism in the world anyhow so <laughs> it kills trees and so then what happens is the Forest Service comes through and they log this area uh, to kill, they get rid of the trees because of fire danger, because of lightning strikes, you know. But it's a honey mushroom, Armillaria astoii. And the mycelium grows, and I love these fabric networks of mycelium. All of you can see this, just go outside, find a piece of wood that's been on the ground for a few months, tip it up. But I believe habitats have immune systems. And the mycelial networks are the foundation of the terrestrial food web that connects us all. So... From those four stimuli, primordia form, and then boom, four days later, as you see, a mushroom forms and matures. And then it invites all sorts of predators to come to consume it to help spread its spores. And then the mycelium, the mushroom begins to decompose very, very rapidly. And then a few days later, the spores are germinating. Lots of other organisms are growing. And the mushroom turns into mycelium and goes underground. And a single cubic inch of soil that can be more than a mile of these fine threads. My foot covers approximately 300 miles of mycelium. 
So this movie was made by my friend Patrick Hickey. And until he made this movie, it was not known that these bundles of nuclei stream through the mycelial networks. And, they, they, and they, we, he calls them comet nuclei. But they go and they stream, and you'll notice not, not all of them go in the same direction. They go against cytoplasmic flow. And we speculate that because of epigenesis and at the ends, they're polynucleate, when they code for new information, this information is then back-channeled into the mother mycelial network. Now, looking at the, the mycelium and the electron microscope, I was always fascinated looking at my micrographs, like how well articulated the mycelium is. Well, for, there's oftentimes branches, as long as there is a length, there's a branch. And so it's highly networked, so there's no specific place that you can harm the mycelial network. Um, indeed, if you break it and you damage the mycelium, it can, if it had a voice, it would say, thank you, because then it would just start growing again. Mushroom growers actually scratch the mushroom beds. When the mushroom beds and the button mushrooms stop growing, one way of inducing fruitings is to scratch the mycelium to break it up, and then you get a, another flush. But they form micro-cavities that swell with water. And then these like little bladders, and so the mycelium habitat is a spongy habitat. It holds water. It retains water. There's lots of ecological benefits from that to other members of the ecological community. So my good friend Lee Stein is here in the audience. He goes, Paul, you have to show this slide. And this is from these Japanese researchers that were studying how a slime mold grows. These Japanese are so cool and so weird in their science. But they decided, <clears throat> this Japanese researcher said, <clears throat> well, these fungi are so intelligent, in this case, a slime mold. Let's see how, the Jap uh, the, how they can redesign the Japanese subway system. So this is Tokyo, uh, and slime molds put it on an oat flake. These are little oat flakes in a Petri dish, introduced at zero hours, five hours it grows out, 11 hours, random access, and then after it connects all these nutritional places, which basically are the, the subsidies around Tokyo, it reorganizes the connections in the most efficient way possible and redesigned the Tokyo subway system more efficiently than it's designed today. Moreover, when scientists then, when mathematicians tried to solve this problem, they found that the slime mold approached near optimization. Now, this is surprising to us now, but think about it. After hundreds of millions of years of evolution, efficiency is, is one of the big drivers of evolutionary success. It makes sense. So perhaps if you have an engineering problem, you should consult a slime mold. <laughs> but the organization of the mycelium has remarkable resemblance to the organization of brain neurons. It also looks very similar to the idealization of the computer internet. I believe the invention of the computer internet is a, rep is a representation of a previously proven evolutionary successful model, and that we came to invent the computer internet at a time critical to share information and knowledge. Moreover, when you look at the organization of dark matter, this is a deep field view from the Hubble telescope, the organization of dark matter conforms to the same archetype. The mycelium, brain neurons, the computer internet, the organization of dark matter, there's 170,000 galaxies. In our galaxy, the Milky Way alone, it's estimated there is more than a billion Earth-like planets. How many billions of Earth-like planets are just in this one deep field view? Now, I'm going to wax poetic, but this is something I believe deeply in. 
This is from Discovery. This is the most massive view of the universe. It also conforms to string theory and also conforms to the same archetype shared by mycelium, the computer internet, brain neurons. And then looking at the origination of the universe 13.7 billion years ago with the Big Bang, I believe matter begets life. Life becomes single cells. Single cells string together, then they fork. Membranes form, networks form, collaboration between networks, mutualism, symbiosis, then gives these networks a better chance of survival. So the Earth came into existence 4.6 billion years ago. 3.8 billion years ago is the first evidence of life. There's another unique fossil that was found in Australia just this past two years that pushes that back now even 200 million years earlier. But the Earth coalesced out of stardust. We advanced forward 420 million years ago. This organism lived. It was given, first discovered in 1859, given the name Prototaxides. Prototaxides existed at a time before there were towering trees, before there were, there were woody plants, there were ferns, there weren't flying insects. Prototaxides was approximately 35 feet to 40 feet long. Just this height here, it would make it the tallest organism on Earth at that time. But Prototaxides has been a big mystery for over 150 years until Dr. Kevin Boyce in the Journal of Geology deciphered what it was. 420 million to 380 million years ago, dotting across the face of this planet were giant fungi. <laughs> and they would attract lightning strikes, of course. Electromagnetically, the Earth was a lot more you know, active at that time. A great place for insects and other organisms to harbor into these fleshy fungi. Then we advance forward to 250 million years ago, the time of Pangaea. At the great PT boundary, the Permian-Triassic boundary, a huge extinction event occurred. Now, there's three competing theories. It could have been an asteroid impact, could have been methane hydrate burst coming out of the ocean, could have been volcanoes in, in the sub-Russian region. I don't see them as mutually exclusive. The asteroid impact could have created the fissures that caused the volcanoes and the methane hydrate burst to go into the atmosphere, enormous amounts of debris jettisoned in the atmosphere. The earth was cloaked in darkness, massive extinction, and fungi inherited the earth. We go forward, and so the asteroid impact is one, and we actually found in the fossil record these fungi 250 million years ago. They were given the name, recently, they're given the name, Reduviosporinides. These were the great fungal networks that gobbled up the forest debris. And the predominant fungal mycelium was this Reduviosporinides. We advanced to 140 million years ago, approximately. And then at the time of Gondwana land, we have continental drift. We go forward and now we know we had an asteroid impact 65 million years ago. It created the extinction of the, caused the extinction of the dinosaurs. Again, huge debris fields shrouded the earth in dust. Sunlight was cut off and fungi re-inherited the earth. There's a recurring theme here, folks. 
When you want to survive extinction events, and we're entered in a 6X, pairing with fungi is a probably a very good survival choice. <laughs> so now we come to our beautiful planet as we see it today. And the mycelium produces extracellular metabolites, lots of water, lots of antiviral, antibacterial compounds, messenger crystals, all sorts of exotic molecules. But interestingly, it produces lots of oxalic acid, which is two carbon dioxide molecules joined together. Oxalic acid then combines with calcium, iron, other minerals, and forms oxalates, which are insoluble in water. And so the mycelium, even though it's outgassing carbon dioxide, a lot of the carbon dioxide is, is incorporated in these oxalates. Now, the greatest reservoir of carbon in the world on land is mycelium. When I gave a talk at TED and Al Gore came up to me, said, Paul, you taught me something I didn't know. I said, really? Okay. Um, and, but this is the state of knowledge at the time. We're trying to catch up. And this is why I'm emphasizing basic science. The emphasis on basic science is so important. Just this past year, just in the past four months, the largest networks in the world have been discovered. Where? In the oceans. Well, not really in the oceans. In the igneous rock below the sedimentary layer are infused vast mycelial networks underneath the water. Mycologists didn't know this until a group of scientists, mycologists, just discovered this. Mycelium is virtually everywhere. The mycelium can harbor bacteria. That dualistic relationship between bacteria and fungi gives us a lot of our antibiotics. The mycelium can be very, very tenacious. It holds substrates together, prevents erosion. The mycelium radiates outward, constantly forking. This is one of my favorite photographs. And now I'm going to start talking about some of the mushrooms. And I'm going to talk about this mushroom first, which is chaga, Inonotus oblicus. Chaga's had a long history of use, especially in Eurasia, in China, in the Asian region, and in Russia. It is very tough. It's a kind of asexual mass that forms on birch and beech trees. And our ancestors would boil it in water. Well, that's a good way of doing it because you can't eat this thing. But if you powder it up and boil it in water, you make a nice tea. Unfortunately, chaga is being cut off of trees massively because of the interest in chaga as a medicinal, medicinal quote-unquote mushroom. But we have found that growing the mycelium is sustainable. And a group of medical researchers in the, in the UK bought our chaga extract, unbeknownst to us, uh, for IBD patients and found that the mycelial extract compared favorably or better than the chaga and raw form and had extreme protection of oxidative stress damage to DNA. Well, let me just talk a little bit about how this extraction works. So here's an extraction chart, and the uh, more polar, most water-loving of fractions, and from these mushrooms, proteins, glycoproteins, polysaccharides, come out in water. Well, the least polar, in this case, we're going to hexane oils, are lipids. I think most of you know that. Uh, oil does not soluble in water. So when you do an extraction with hot water, you partition away all these other non-water soluble constituents. So the mantra has been hot water extracts, that's the way to work. Well, 
It makes sense. Our ancestors were boiling mushrooms to detoxify, get rid of the bacteria, make them more palatable, make them absorbable. But now with the advent of tissue culture, we're opening up a whole new world of looking at mycelium. And as I said before, I believe the mycelium is the immune system of the mushroom. The mycelium codes for a lot more proteins than the mushroom does, because the mycelium has to navigate through this hostile environment with all these challenges. The mushroom's at the end of the life cycle. So one of the premier mushrooms is turkey tail, the most well-studied mushroom, medicinal mushroom in the world, literally hundreds of articles in the scientific literature. We were funded by NIH uh, for $2.2 million for a breast cancer clinical study. And I was one of the principal investigators that co-wrote the grant. We got the grant, and then my fellow researchers said, well, where do we get the mushrooms? I said, please get them from us. We have a chain of custody. There's so many problems in mushroom cultivation that people just don't know, especially, you know, other people are specialists in other areas. So get them from us. And they said, well, you can't be a principal investigator and a supplier as a, contract of, a conflict of interest. Do one or the other. So I resigned as, as a PI. Uh, and we were then put into a pool. Unfortunately, our, our, ours was chosen to be the sole uh, turkey tail mushrooms used in this breast cancer clinical study. The, the, this is a phase one study, and basically prior to radiation, post-radiation, there is a damage to your, your na native natural kill cell, killer cell population that declines. And then on a dose-dependent basis, two weeks and four weeks, there is a statistically significant increase in the CD8 cytotoxic T cells of high significance. That number of P is 0.0003 is very, very significant. And the higher, uh, higher uh, uh, doses of TB are also associated with, uh, with natural killer cell activity. Not only more cells, but they're more active. Well, I was involved in this research, and then my sister Lily, and my brother John, and my brother Bill, and I faced a family tragedy. And I think it's just best to let you watch a short two or three minute um, episode from my uh, TED Med talk. Another mushroom empowers the immune system, and this is turkey tail. This hit home to me very personally in June of 2009, when my 84-year-old mother called me up and says, Paul, I have something very serious to talk to you about, but you're always so busy. It's a terrible thing for, to hear from mom. I said, Mom, what's wrong? And she's a very happy, genuine person. She goes, I'm worried. And my mother's deeply religious, has not seen a doctor since 1968. She said, my right breast is five times the size of my left. I have six swollen lymph glands the size of walnuts. And her voice started shaking, and I'm not ashamed to admit that I started crying. Why didn't you tell me sooner? We spent a large part of June at the Swedish Breast Cancer Clinic in Seattle. The oncologist examined her, and upon the second examination, she had a 5.5 centimeter diameter tumor. It metastasized, it went to her sternum, it went to her liver. She had stage four breast cancer. The doctor gave her less than three months to live and stated that it was the second worst case of breast cancer she has seen as a doctor in 20 years of practice. We had the circle family meeting. Many of you have gone through this. My mom announced that she bought a pine casket, the cheapest one that she could find because she was going to heaven. But then the doctor said, you know, you're too old to have radiation therapy. You can't have your breasts removed. But there's an interesting study on turkey tail mushrooms at Bistir Medical School. You might want 
to try taking those. And that's my brother goes, well, my son's supplying those. So she was put on Taxol and Herceptin, wonderful drugs. And then she started taking eight turkey tail capsules a day, four in the morning and four in the evening. And that was in June of 2009. And today, my mother has no detectable tumors. And I'd like to bring my mother home. So my mother then, seven years later, leaves me this message. Hi, Paul. Everything's go. Everything's wonderful. Past all the flying colors. So thank you for your prayers. I love you. And I'll check in with you later. Bye-bye. <laughs> my mother is in Scotland right now. She will be 91 the day after tomorrow. My mother thinks that Jesus sent me. <laughs> I'll take all the help I can get. <laughs> I don't mind. Uh, and I like to say, also, a few months ago, my mother uh, beat my brother Bill and my twin brother in Scrabble. You know, um, so she's really mentally on top of it. And uh, Lily and I, you know, went through this experience, and many of you have. So there's nothing more wonderful than a child you know, coming to the rescue and the help of the parent that gave them life. So then her study, her, her case study was written up as a best case outcome in a medical journal. And very interestingly, then also, um, because of, she was taking Herceptin and Turkey Tail, it was found that Herceptin and Turkey Tail together enhances the activity of Herceptin. PSK is an active constituent in Turkey Tail mushrooms. And then this, uh, the oncologist, uh, Julie Smith, my mother was, went to Swedish hospital in Seattle, but she's living near Ellensburg, Washington, uh, over the side of the mountains. So when she left the Swedish hospital, my mother had her medical report, and she goes, should I tell my new oncologist I'm taking turkey tail mushrooms? I said, mom, please don't. Your other oncologist was up the learning curve out of an abundance of caution. 95% of all physicians will say, stop taking any mushroom supplements. Let us do our treatment. And the 50 women who entered the Herceptin program, my mother found out from Julie Smith, 48 of them died after five years. My mother and one other woman were the only two survivors. I don't know the case of the other survivor right now. So in this report, when Julie Smith was asked by another physician, had Patty, her name is as Patty, had Patty mentioned that she was taking turkey tail mushrooms, what would you have said? And Julie Smith would have said, I would have told her to stop. Our family, my mother and myself in particular, believe that was a life and death decision. Because doctors are trained to present authority, knowledge, assurance, and, you know, frankly, doctors don't know everything. They're specialists. And so if it's new, out of an abundance of caution, they'll say no. So in doing these studies, um, PSK is found as not a pure compound in turkey tails. And in fact, when PSK was exposed to a lipase, 
which removes the lipids, which are not water-soluble. PSK is a huge macromolecule. These are beta-glucans. They're giant molecular scaffoldings, a million molecular weight, more. And upon these scaffoldings, there are embedded all sorts of proteins and lipids and other compounds. When a lipase was presented, and this is all very new information, it denatured and reduced the anti-tumor properties of PSK by more than 80%. That means the lipid components, the non-water-soluble components, are giving the majority of the immune benefit. Well, and it's a really exciting series of articles came out, and it turns out that turkey tail mycelium influences the microbiome favorably in patients, enhancing lactobacillus, bifidobacterium, and acidophilus while suppressing staphylococcus, clostridium, and enterococcus. These are inflammatory bacteria. So it turns out, and it makes sense now, because the mycelium, which is growing through the environment, is producing selective antibacterial compounds that, uh, that suppresses bacteria that wants to consume it, but it enlists other bacteria that it comes into a mutualistic relationship with, that partners with it so its antibacterial properties can fight off the other bacteria that would otherwise be predating on the mushroom mycelium. So the mycelium sets up a microbiome that is conducive, and then most of us like mushrooms or we consume them. But you know, occasionally I meet people that go, I can't stomach mushrooms. Well, you know, that's actually a scientifically valid observation, I think. It's because I have an incompatibility, probably, of their microbiome with a microbiome that's normally associated with fungi. So I think there's a lot more to this. So this is a randomized clinical study that showed great significance on that. So let's go back to the old growth forest. That's where Dusty and I spent a lot of time. And let's then talk about agaricon, the longest living mushroom in the world. Agaricon grows in the Pacific Northwest, Washington, Oregon, Northern California, and in British Columbia, and a few sky islands in Europe, Slovenia, and in, in, in Italy, and in Australia. Uh, but largely extinct now because of deforestation. It only grows in the old growth forest. So I got a National Geographic Award, and they wanted to do a story on agaricon, and the search for agaricon. I did a talk on the search for agaricon, and there was a writer there, and he got real excited. Let's do a Nat Geo article. So they, they came out in the summertime. Dusty took this great photograph. We rented a, mo a motor sailor and a Zodiac, and we went up the inland passage of Desolation Sound. Now, how likely is I would find agaricon? Well, let me just put it in this perspective. Dr. Michael Bug, that you saw, one of my mentors in that, one of the first slides, been hunting mushrooms in the old growth forest for 40 years, 10, 20 times a, a year at least. He found his first agaricon three years ago. That's how rare it is. Now, they want to do a, a story, Nat Geo said, oh, great. And they said, well, how likely is you find agaricon? I go, 50-50. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't want to dissuade them. But I had good reasons. I thought, well, I'll bring 10 of my friends, and some of these friends are in the audience right now, Michael Vallow, and, uh, and so we had high-powered binoculars, and we went up the Inland Passage, and we looked for, basically, it looks like a giant beehive, and where bald eagles are on big old trees, snags, you know, we can oftentimes see these, these big agaricon. But I thought, you know, we'll go up, we have 10 people, binoculars, and we'd look, no, no, not on that tree, not on that tree, not on that tree. You do that three or four hours, you got a retina burn, you know, you're just like. And so after a while, like, you know, the photojournalist said, hey, we're not doing too well, Paul, you promised. I said, hey, I said, 50 50, dude, you know. <laughs> but then our skipper said, you know, let's go over and take a break. 
you know, this is not doing too well. So we went over, and there's a very interesting pictographic site of First Peoples. We don't know what it means because of two smallpox pandemics, two flu pandemics, wiped out 90% of the people, 95% of the people, um, four times within 40, 50 years. So it decimated the population. But we went over, and so we went over there, and we're motoring in, and then one of our teammates goes, there is one. And I'm like, gosh, we found one. It was incredible. And so, it's, and it was attached to an upper limb. It fell, hit this limb, teeter-tottered, and then it regrew its mycelium back into the tree, and then it grew two legs, you know. <laughs> so it's not only an agaricon, but it's an exceptionally interesting agaricon. So then... Dr. Scott Franzblau, who is the director at the Institute for Tuberculosis Research, knew about the ethnomycological reports from Dioscorides of agaricon active against consumption, later to be known as tuberculosis. He comes with us, and we go to the pictographic sites. Agaricon was carved into grave guardians to help first peoples uh, go into the afterlife. And so, and also, agaricon, or the artist conch, is thought to be fungus man who helps... Uh, 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 raven uh, on the canoe traveling on the, uh, paddling the sea of eternity to find women genitalia. So, I mean, there's a very deep. So not only in Dioscorides times, in Greek times, Agaricum was important, but also with the First Peoples. Well, after many years, Scott Brandt, Franzbaum, Changwa Chen, and Guido uh, Pauli, we found, indeed, anti-tubercular molecules active in Agaricon um, and so there's a great example where ethnomycology carries forward to modern science. And how do we define these molecules? From biogated fractionation. Now that, what that means is that we have one solvent that's polar, one solvent that's not polar. You do two extracts, you test this one, you test this one. This one's more potent. Okay, let's go down this one. And you fractionate, subfractionate, subfractionate classical techniques for pharmaceutical discovery. So we did that. It was painstaking and took many years to finally find the anti-tubercular compounds. Okay, let's go back. And he, we're at that site where we're having our picnic where we found a garricon. And then I'm such an idiot. There I see this rock. Well, that rock looks really interesting. It kind of looks like an agaricon. There's a garricon, there's a rock, there's a garricon, there's a rock, there's a garricon, there's a rock. <laughs> okay, how likely is we find a garricon? I don't know, one out of a hundred times. How likely would we find it at a pictographic site that looks, has pictographs that look very similar to the origination myth of women in the height of culture? I don't know, one out of 1,000, one out of 10,000 times. How likely would we find it where there's a, like a rock that looks very, very strikingly similar to a garricon? I don't know, one out of 500,000 times, whatever. How likely is it we'd find it on my birthday? <laughs> and this is when... the the photojournalist got really nervous, started, started stuttering, and looked, at us and looked at our friends and said, does this happen to Paul and Dusty often? And uh, my friends looked at him deadpan and said, yes. <laughs> and this, I think, speaks to a greater truth. I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual. And I believe now there's a convergence of science and spirituality. If you walk with intent, true to your heart, respecting indigenous peoples, not doing it for ego, having fun, I think nature will lead you to these successes and these discoveries. So June of 2001, I did a survey on all the antiviral studies ever published on mushrooms. It made the cover of Herbalgram, 
and it's a whopping one page long. <laughs> and that's half of its photographs, you know, so there's almost nothing that was in the, in the scientific literature. I published this in June of 2001, and then 9-11 occurs. And the Department of Defense gets a hold of me and says, we have a BioShield biodefense program. We saw your article in Herbalgram. We're very concerned about bioterrorism. We're setting up a new program for testing anything, natural products or pure molecules. We're inviting you to submit. Went, wow, that's amazing. So we started sub submitting, and we do mushrooms. We grow lots of mushrooms. We did hot water extracts, ethanol extracts of mushrooms, the same with mycelium. And I had a suspicion, but I did not know until these articles came out, that there are more genes activated in the mycelium than there is in the mushrooms, for the same reasons I explained. They have to navigate through a hostile environment. So we started doing extracts, and then we hit the big home run. We ended up finding that agaricon not only is active against tuberculosis, but is highly active against smallpox, cowpox, vaccinia, and other pox viruses. Now, I, I know I'm going to go over a little bit longer, but this is kind of too fun not to tell. Um, so I'm in Canada, Dusty and I are there, and the research results come back, and the U.S. government was so disorganized. I got the first set of research results, they're fantastic, you know, the, in the sample number 75, 78, none of those samples were active, but the mycelium of agaricon was active against pox viruses. I got real excited, I called up my Department of Defense handler, saying, these are great results. And he goes, what results? And he goes, well, Federal Express just gave me all these research results. He goes, you're not supposed to get those, I am. I go, I'll photocopy and send them to you. <laughs> <laughs> so we're up in Canada, and then a helicopter shows up over our laboratory. And our general manager goes, holy you know, shit. He said, calls me up, Paul, the helicopter over the laboratory. Said, oh, big deal. You know, the helicopters come by all the time. He goes, no, no, it's really close. I go, how close? He goes, listen. Choom, 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 choom. <laughs> I go, whoa. I go, what's the numbers on the tail? And he goes, there are no numbers. It's a Black Hawk helicopter. I go, oh, whoa. Okay, I said, shut down the business, give the cultures of Agaricon you know, to, to ten, seven employees at the time. Everybody split right now. So, and don't tell me, and don't tell me who has them, right? The, the government, I mean, I, I'm kind of sympathetic to the government, because, but somebody they don't talk to each other, right? So, two, so, the idea, so we had activity against pox viruses. The idea is if a terrorist got the antidote to smallpox, then they could weaponize it and release a pandemic, and then they could protect themselves, et cetera. So anyhow, but we, then we got cleared. Everything got all smoothed out. And, <laughs> so so you, you can go. You can go I, I encourage you to do this. You can Google uh, Stamets and smallpox and National Public Radio, NPR, Listen uh, to the director of the BioShield Biodefense Program, a renowned virologist, the deputy director of the FDA, um, and myself, and they say, and this press release is vetted, said we have the best of over 200,000 samples uh, uh, submitted, and the top 10 over 200,000, I factor the top uh, of more than 10, 10, 2 million. So I was then able to come out, and I just blurted out one day, you know what this, the implications are to the the DOD officials I was talking to at a big conference call. This means that therefore, because Agaricon grows in the old growth forest, we should save the old growth forest as a matter of national defense. So, and that went over really well. I was like, really, I became more patriotic because all the other scientists at the DOD says, yeah, that's great. Osama bin Laden didn't have an old growth forest, but we do, let's preserve it and protect it. You can get conservatives behind this, right? So, 
anyhow, so um, you can look up that, that press release and listen to the NPR interview. Then the National Center for Natural Products Research at the University of Mississippi, again, doing bioorganic fractionation, solvent extractions. Over many years, we found two new active principal ingredients, molecules, structures are called, a sulfuronic acid and ebercocoic acid that is more active than sodafovir, which is the preeminent positive anti-drug con control. So we found uh, some molecules, again, painstakingly. Uh, so now the viruses of concern quickly became flu viruses. And so the BioShield program shifted their focus from pox viruses to flu viruses because they're out there and there's big reservoirs and they could be, um, you know, they, they could be mutated and selected for it. So Dr. Earl Kern, there's a selectivity index that tells you how potent antivirals are. They really have to focus on anything that's over 10 is highly active. So we submitted, they had over, we submitted, I think, 700 samples. We had to have a more than a 30% success rate before it dropped out of the program. So this is the ribavirin, the positive drug control. Remember, anything over 10 is active. And this is the flu viruses, H5N1, H3N2, flu B, et cetera. And these are mushroom extracts of agaricon, the red reishi, uh, chaga, and a combination of those three. So there's a ribavirin memory. Anything over 10 is active. Our, uh, our extracts were diluted 100 to 1. These are 35% ethanol. They're in vitro cell assays in direct contact with human cells. So 35% alcohol is too toxic. Diluted 10 to 1 is uh, 3.5. That's still too toxic. 10 to 1, again, is 0.35. 100 to 1 dilution of our, our extracts from the mycelium run on rice, and our SI numbers are more than 10 times more active than a positive drug control. So, of course, I got real excited about this, but I'm also very competitive because the pharmaceutical companies could steal this from me, so I filed a patent. I filed this patent in 2004. After three or four years, it still hasn't showed up on the patent homepage. I called my patent attorney and says, where is my friggin' patent? What happened to it? He gets all the patent office and the Department of Defense hijacked the patent out of the USPTO, you know, the, the patent uh, office because of national security for the same reason I explained before. And so I said, we had to do an intergovernmental agency uh, trace and they finally released the OD, my patent, to be reviewed. And then we got this ridiculous rejection for the patent. It made no sense whatsoever at all. And I was like, these are, I was now you know, kind of pissed off. So I decided, okay, I'm going to fight this. So we go to the pre-board of appeals, 10 patent examiners, unanimity of opinion, approved this patent, no prior art, no prior evidence of anybody else ever discovering anything like this, and overcome the other patent examiner's objections. I think she was in bed with the DOD or somebody. I'm not sure. Um, and so the patent was finally approved after 10 years <laughs> in June uh, of 2014. This patent is duly active against viruses and bacteria. The majority of people that die from flu viruses die from bacterial pneumonia because they end up having all this liquid in their lungs and they get a secondary infection of bacteria and it's the bacterial pneumonia or the bacterial uh, uh, infection that kills them and the virus you know, impairs the immune system. So to have something that's duly active against viruses and bacteria is very medically significant. And this is what I want to suggest to you. Biogated fractionation to single, one single molecule may not be as useful as partial fractionation. Do you have sets of molecules that are active against multiple uh, vectors of disease? So then I was happy to see that the Russians at the Vector Institute, 
I gave a talk, and I mentioned this uh, to in Washington, D.C., and a bunch of Fort Detrick researchers who were involved in the BioShield program heard I was in town. They came to my talk. And the, the, the Vector Institute, which is like the Fort Detrick of Russia, where they have smallpox, they came out with an article, and they also found that agaricon is active against uh, pox and, and, and flu viruses. And I told the audience, hey, we beat the Russians by eight years, and there was a small cheer from the audience. You know. <laughs> so then another article came out also saying that, that these mushrooms are also active. So this, other people have now authenticated this. <coughs> now, this, is, this is now begins a sequence of events. I, I didn't know how to call these like boxes, and I thought the milestones, that's not quite right. So I'm not exactly sure how to put this, but I want to now show you that leads to an astonishing discovery. Absolutely counterintuitive, absolutely uh, improbable. But I need to set the stage here. So I'm going to call this discovery of the antivirals mycofactor number one. There are seven mycofactors, seven episodic events, several phenomena, several, you know, whatever. What do you want to call them? It's events. So let's go, and now, so that's mycofactor one. Well, we grow the garden giant mushroom. It's aptly, appro uh, aptly named. It's a huge mushroom. And in 1984, I had put the garden giant mushroom in, out in my garden, and... Uh, it was, I was going out there in the summertime, and lo and behold, a bunch of bees started showing up in my, in my garden, giant mushroom patch. I looked really carefully, and they moved the wood chips away, and they exposed the mycelium. And I looked at it real carefully. I could see them sipping on the mycelium, little, those little exudated droplets. Oh, they have lots of sugars. That's cute. That's interesting. I wonder what they're doing. For six weeks, from dawn to dusk, from my beehives to my garden, there was a continuous convoy of bees. Now, this mushroom normally gets like this big, and the bed of wood chips is like this, and they went poof like this, and the mushrooms aborted, and they're no longer red. They lack melanin. I wish I could talk about this for hours, but that's really significant. So, anyhow, mycofactor number two, okay? <laughs> Now, string these mycofactors together because it'll make sense uh, towards the end here. So, hiking in the old growth forest? Well, bear scratch trees. And the bear scratch trees, they leave scratch marks, and it turns out that bees are attracted to bear scratches. They get resins or propolis to patch the cracks in the beehives. So, that's interesting. So Dusty and I are hiking in the South Fork of the Ho River. Maybe I should have told you that. That's our favorite place. <laughs> um, and we go around the corner, and Dusty sees this bear scratch. Now, look at this bear scratch. This is the best bear scratch photograph I've ever seen. Bear comes up to a tree, bam, right? <laughs> and so I said, well, Dusty, this is really amazing because bear scratch trees, but the reason why we're where we live, Camilche Point, Washington, there are no bears and there's three or four wild salmon runs, and there's salmon carcasses everywhere, is because the Forest Service and lumber industry got together and decided that bear scratches hurt the timber board feet of, of, of lumber coming out of the forest, so let's shoot the bears. So my neighbor killed 400 bears on contract because the bears were hurting the lumber industry. 
And I said, the reason I did, did that, Dusty, is because it introduces a polypore mushroom, the red-belted polypore, the most common polypore you'll find in, uh, in the woods. And so if that's true, let's come back. So two years later, hiking through the old-growth forest, and I like to orienteer, um, uh, I won't go into it, um, but anyhow. <laughs> um, so we go back, and it took us a long time because we're off trail, and fortunately, a friend of ours was with us, spied it, and there is that bear scratch again. Went, wow, okay, the tree's been killed, and lo and behold, the red-belted polypore was fruiting. I said, well, they kind of got it right. Later on, it was this, uh, earlier, it was found several years ago that bears bring up carcasses of sea-run trout and salmon, returns phosphorus from the ocean to the forest. Phosphorus is a limiting mineral that limits the diameter and the growth of the trees. So the bears actually were servicing the forest by bringing sea minerals back into the forest, and that's why the old-growth trees and the lower elevations are so large, because the salmon are bringing back the sea minerals. So anyhow, they got that wrong. Um, but the red-belted polypore, sure enough, was growing there. Well, now think of this. We all grew up with Winnie the Pooh. We all know that, that uh, bears are attracted to rotting logs. I mean, bees are attracted to rotting logs. So, Michael factor number three. Okay, so just keep that in your memory banks. And now, the New York Times had a great article. Global food supply is threatened by the loss of bees. It's been colloquially called colony collapse disorder, CCD. CCD, loss of beehives in the United States, went from 35% last year to 41. I have met people who have lost 75 to 100% of their bees. And imagine, if you were a cattle rancher and you lost 41 out of 100 cattle each year, that's a real challenging situation. There is a, should be a new psychological term of a beekeeper's depression or something. Because I meet these beekeepers who are just totally depressed. They have to burn their hives. They're like, they're out of it. The bees are dying because of a multiplicity of factors. Many of you know about this. But President Obama came out with a memorandum. The bee nutrition, loss of forage lands, parasites, mites, viruses, and pesticides, neonicotinoids, likely, are causing the bees to suffer. Well, Louis Schwartzberg is a friend of mine, and he's a great, you know, slow-mo, fast-mo filmmaker. And he knew about my work with insects. Some of you may know about my other work with controlling termites and ants. And he said, Paul, what can you do to help the bees? And I said, Louis, that's really interesting you mentioned that because, you know, I had these beehives, and, you know, for 40 days, I, these bees were going to my mycelium. So he kind of kindled an idea, and I, I re-remembered this event. But can I just give you an idea? It's courtesy of Whole Foods. Thank you, Whole Foods. This is your dairy choices with bees. This is your dairy choices without bees. 30% of your food is dependent upon bee pollination directly. Indirectly, 60 to 70%. So I had this epiphany. I'm laying in bed, and I like laying in bed just between being fully asleep and awake and just staying in that strange equilibrium between unconsciousness and consciousness. 
And before all my brain connections get into their normal mode, it's kind of like random access thinking. And I had this epiphany. I bet you I know how to save the bees. And I called my friend Lee Stein because I was writing a book. I said, Lee, I just had this eureka moment. I said, here's my hypothesis. And he said, stop everything, Paul. Pursue this. The Vero destructor mite was introduced in the mid-1980s, like 1984. Um, and it's been devastating uh, the ecosystem. The amount of miticides that are being used right now has been, uh, has been banned by the EPA, but the miticides being used is the one that's being used for treating cattle, you can imagine. Um, and they were drenching the beehives twice per year, just four or five years ago. Now they're drenching the beehives eight times a year with a toxic miticide that's not safe for you to consume. So I have now eight patents on entomopathogenic fungi with this fungus and other fungi that, and I discovered a way of being able to control ter termites, carpenter ants, et cetera. It's all over the internet that Paul Stamos can take down Monsanto. It's not true, I can't take down Monsanto, but it's a fun read. Um, <laughs> but it's using this fungus now, Monsanto is highly interested in this fungus as well, but I beat him to the punch, so to speak. So these, this fungus, metarhizium, can control the varroa mites. And as I speak today at Washington State University, we have ongoing trials uh, in the laboratory and now in the field using metarhizium to control the varroa mite. So we're very excited about that. And this is then mycofactor number four. Okay. So in looking at colony collapse disorder, an article came out that was extremely interesting to me. It found that P. cumeric acid was absent in the honey from abandoned beehives. The bees disappeared literally in one or two days. Thousands of bees suddenly gone. What happens is the nurse bees, the foraging bees only live for nine days or so. They forage for five or six days, you know, opportunistically, but about nine days total. Um, and then they bring back pollen to the hive and the nurse bees are taking care of the brood. Well, the worker bees now, rather than being working for nine days, they've shortened now their foraging to less than four days. So the nurse bees abandon the brood, and the mites then, or varroa mites, are biting the brood now because the nurse bees can't take care of them. Nurse bees can be, become foraging bees. They go out to get pollen. And you have the slippery slope. And in analyzing honey, I mean, hundreds of pounds of honey, thousands of bees suddenly disappear within two or three days, and there's no P. cumeric acid in the honey. I went, wow, I know P-cumeric acid. P-cumeric acid comes from mycelium. P-cumeric acid activates the cytochrome P450 pathway. It's not that complicated. It's your detoxification pathway. All animals have it. We mostly have it in our liver. Without P-cumeric acid, the bees cannot break down toxins, herbicides, fungicides, you know, neonicotinoids, glyphosates, and many of which interfere with the microbiome in the gut of the bee. So when I saw this article, P-cumeric acid, I know where P-cumeric acid comes from. It comes from breaking down lignine, breaking down wood. And then, not to get too technical here, but I became really hyper-focused. Why were my mushrooms not red? They were blonde, they were white. And it turns out that as the mycelium comes to the surface, it's exposed to light, UV. And when the UV light hits the mycelium, P-cumeric acid goes down and upregulates the, the decomposition sequence. Vanillic acid, cinnamonic acid, these other acids are formed. 
but the P-chromeric acid is, is being lost. So the bees maybe were coming to my wood chips, uncovering the wood chips to get into that P-chromeric acid-rich mycelium to help them live to break down toxins. Perhaps. Very interestingly, bees can see blue light down to 320 nanometers. We can see it 400. So hypothetically, is it possible that the bees are flying around looking for blue mycelium? And they see that mycelium, they know they can activate their, their detoxification pathways. Okay, that's possible. But then this article comes out. Turns out that Tamiflu is dependent upon the star anise as a feedstock, mostly uh, uh, being gathered in Afghanistan and that region of the world once a year. You can imagine the supply chain issues that are involved in that. And so the shortage of Tamiflu a few years ago is because they couldn't get enough star anise for getting shikimic acid. Shikimic acid is related to P-cumeric acid. And it was just discovered that oyster mushrooms, when exposed to blue light, will produce shikimic acid. So Tamiflu can be generated in huge quantities without supply chain issues. Blue light stimulates the precursors for antivirals. Okay? That is mycofactor number five. <laughs> Keep that in your, in your memory bank. So then we developed myco-honey, all from mycelium, grown on rice, and we developed the myco-honey the super rich in P-cumeric acid, and we fed it to the bees at Washington State University. We surveyed about 15, I think, different mushroom species as a longevity stress test. All the bees die in captivity in the laboratory within 30 days. But can we help the bees survive longer was the nature of the test. So we did this with Dr. Scott Shepard, who's the chair of entomology at Washington State University, and Brandon Hopkins, a postdoc now. And so we started feeding the bees mycelial extracts put into their water. The majority of beekeepers, commercial keepers, feed sugar water, 50% sucrose, corn syrup or pure sugar, into water because they're taking away the honey. They also want to fortify the bees before they go into winter. So we started subjecting and giving the extracts to the bees. And here's the results. Very interestingly, the mushrooms that showed the best benefits are associated with birch trees. The red-belted polypore, chaga, amadou, which my hat is made of, this one here, And the red reishi, this one here. Well, you may remember that chaga and the Fomitopsis officinalis agaricon, they're active also against flu viruses. Well, here is some of the initial results. And Dr. C. Shepard says, as an entomologist of 39 years studying bees, I'm unaware of anything that extends the life of bees more so than this. Significance factor, extremely significant, more than a doubling of the number of bees that are surviving at these early days at the time they're most actively foraging. That is with the amadou mushroom, the mushroom that my hat is made from. The red-belted polypore. At this concentration, there's the control, and here's the red-belted polypore at 
0.1%, that's one drop per thousand drops of water, it also massively increases the longevity of bees, meaning there's more bees that can foray. Then with Dave Wick, who's got a DARPA DNA sequencer for viruses, then there's the control for Ed Chaga, this one here. The control of the viruses skyrocket from week one to week two, and then on a dose-dependent basis, as we increase the amount of chaga extract, the viruses plummet. And then with the red, with the red reishi, similarly, the control of the viruses go up. And then on a dose-dependent basis, as we increase the concentration of the extracts of the red reishi from the mycelium, the viruses plummet. So a summary of this is with the controls, the, right, the virus is increased by 33%, and with the mushroom extracts, they're decreasing. Now, something I've never shown before is that this article just came out a few weeks ago in uh, the current opinion of virology. The main factor for colony collapse disorder is the deformed wing virus. When the bees get bit, by the varroa mites, like a dirty syringe, they're injecting this virus, they get malaise, they get sick, just like if you get sick. You're not taking out the garbage, you're not cleaning your house as well, not taking care of your children, you're sick. And so then they end up having dirty hygiene and all these other problems occur. So the Amadou mushroom extract, this is from Jay Evans from the USDA, we have several laboratories doing antiviral research, reduces the deformed wing virus by 1,000 to 1 million times in one week. This is huge as an antiviral. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is mycofactor number six. Okay, let's go back to p chimeric acid, something that hopefully you'll remember now. So this is where the story gets truly, truly even more bizarre than it's been. We have now 80 strains of agaricon, the largest library of agaricon by far in the world. We've spent, Dusty and I spent hundreds of thousands of dollars in getting this library, this strain library together, from all over Washington, Oregon, British Columbia, and some parts of Europe. Well, I have 80 strains. With the BioShield program, I submitted seven strains. Only three of those strains were active against flu viruses and pox viruses. Three out of seven. Probably why the pharmaceutical industry missed this. They chose one species they tested, ah, wasn't, wasn't any activity. But there are differences in potencies between strains, just like anything else in nature. So I had 80 strains of agaricon. I thought, well, I should call up NIH. They like this. They give us all this great research. You know, will they test our 80 strains? Because we'll find a, hype, a super producer. By, for sure, we have 80 strains. We're going to find some strains more potent than others. So we write nihvirology.gov. 17 minutes later, the head of virology at NIH, Dr. Chris Seng, been the head of virology for many decades, writes us back in 17 minutes saying, we'd love to test more material from Paul, but we're not gonna do biogated fractionation. You have to submit a pure molecule. I'm not a chemist. I'm a, I'm a mycologist, I grow things. I have 80 strains. Which molecule am I gonna submit? You know, there's 200,000 molecules that make up these mushrooms or more. They're all uniquely different. So I'm thinking, and I have this, oh my God, what about p chimeric acid? 
What about all the things related about P-chimeric acid with light, stimulation? So I chose 20 molecules looking at the breaking down of wood with P-chimeric acid and vanillic acid, transaminic acid, trifluoric acid. These are all the molecules, directly derivatives after light exposes to the mycelium. I submitted 20 molecules to NIH virology. Now they would accept them only under certain conditions. One, they've never been tested before. There's no literature in the scientific literature on these having antiviral properties. Um, and two, cytologically, does it make sense? Is this a compound, a molecule that actually could be incorporated into, into, a, uh, into a medicine, a medical delivery system? I submitted the first 10 molecules. And I got the research results back. And four of the molecules were more potent than their antiviral drug controls. 44 out of 10 on the first time. The second time, second set of 10, and this is a direct report from NIH Virology. This is what the form looks like. This is their wording and their red lettering, highly active. This molecule, this molecule, this, five of them, highly active against HPV, the human papillomavirus, for which there is no good antiviral. Cydofavir is what they, uh, is using as their positive drug control. And it has, as you remember, the SI numbers, anything over 10 is active, but it is extremely low. This is like 12. We ended up having extremely high activity, 10 to 50 times more potent than, than uh, cydofavir against the human papillomavirus, which unfortunately many of you have right now. It causes cervical cancer, genital warts. It leads to a lot of inflammation, likely to many other cancers as well. And so how likely is this, that I didn't do biogated fractionation. This is what pharmaceutical companies spend a decade, oftentimes, doing biogated fractionation, doing stepwise deduction. I leapfrogged this in five seconds. I was able to jump from my list of chemicals, like, I'm going to try these. So it turns out nine of the 20 molecules I submitted has more potent antiviral activity than ribavirin, sadofavir, and acyclovir. The strangest thing of all is we submitted vanillic acid, vanilla. This is why logs smell good when rotted mycelium in the forest, so that vanilla is coming off. No one tested vanilla as an antiviral. It turns out that vanillic acid, vanilla, is more potent than acyclovir against herpes zoster. This is the, this is the, this is the, the acyclovir is all over TV about shingles. It's off patent, it's a $10 billion drug. No one tested vanilla. Now, for some virologists in the audience, this is, a, this is actually a virostatic. So it stops the virus from reproducing. We are now in the secondary HPV tests with NIH virology, and we have been approved for studying Zika. So we are now have SI numbers against HPV. Remember, anything over 10 is active, and the uh, uh, cytofavir was 10. So we're we are 10 times more potent than the antiviral drug control against HPV. And all these molecules are resonant within the mycelium. So if you get a virus, which one is it? You want to go and take an antiviral medicine? Well, target specificity is good, but if you're going to build up the armamentarium of your immune system, your host defense of your immune system, I think having an armamentarium of a multiplicity of defenses is far better and not getting the virus in the first place, then getting it after the fact. So the summary of this is 
we are more potent than ribavirin, acyclovir, methacinidine, interferon alpha 2b, and cydofovir against her flu, herpes viruses, norovirus, hepatitis, and pox. And we found that, so this is, I don't, how do you explain this? And that was mycofactor number seven. It is time that we all become bee mushroomed. <laughs> Scientists across disciplines need to work together. Biodiversity is our biosecurity. And humans, trees, bears, mushrooms, bees, all terrestrial organisms evolve to be interconnected with the mycelial web of life, Earth's natural internet. I think that I have found something fundamental to the foundation of nature. For millions of years, we were forest people. We were embedded within the mycelial matrices of the forest ecosystems. What did we do 12,000 years ago? We invented agriculture. We cut down the trees. That began to dismantle the immunological mycelial networks of nature. And the fact that these same mushrooms that I've mentioned here are active against viruses that harm people, pigs, birds, bees. I think the mycelial networks are the immune system of the ecosystem, and they control zoonotic diseases within the residents that are in that ecosystem. And when we imbalance the ecosystem, then the zoonotic diseases come to infect us. And if we're not responsible in taking care of the forest ecosystem, then we do so at our own peril. And the mycelium may actually dictate the course of pandemics, the course of human health, which impacts then our political system, causes strife, war, poverty, pollution, loss of biodiversity. This is so fundamental, folks. I feel this to the core of my being. This is an absolute fundamental truth of nature. And I feel that if we follow the mycelial path and we pursue this further, we let's celebrate decomposition. <laughs> You're all going to get there anyhow, right? <laughs> Wake up, folks, you know, greet it with a smile. And I want to reframe it with a new bumper sticker. Let it rot. <laughs> Are you ready for liftoff? <laughs> then let's lift, lift off into the microverse. The microverse is the future. The future is ours. Microdiversity is biodiversity. Mind immersion within the mycelial archetype. We exist forever together within the same molecular matrix. I want to thank you very, very much. Thank you, CIAS. You've been listening to the podcast for the California Institute of Integral Studies. If you liked what you heard, find us and subscribe on iTunes or listen on our website, ciis.edu slash public programs. <laughs>